everybody. Good morning. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to E3 this morning. We're about halfway through uh, this series that we're doing called Gallery 13. And I thought before we dived into today's topic, we're going to be talking about John the Beloved. I thought I would just kind of take a moment to, to reset and tell you guys where we're headed and hopefully why we're headed where we're headed. Uh, so we set out this summer to ask the question, what does discipleship look like in the New Testament? And in particular, who are disciples? What, what are the portraits of discipleship that we can get from the New Testament, not just from the 12 apostles, but through all of these men and women and even children that chose to follow Jesus uh, in the first century while, while he was still alive or when the church was just in its infancy. And so we just chose 12 different individuals, some of whom we know a lot about, some of whom we don't know a lot about, and asked what, what type of qualities do they show us about a disciple? And very quickly, what I found anyway is that disciples look drastically different in the New Testament, that there's no cookie cutter uniform look to a disciple. They come from all manner of socioeconomic levels, all manner of backgrounds, and they all have an individual story that's unique to them. And my hope or our hope in that telling their story, ideally we want you guys to be able to connect your story with one of their stories because this discipleship thing is an invitation to all of us. We all have an individual story and discipleship is not just for the super Christians. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the people who do really well in Sunday school. Discipleship is for everybody, for everybody. And so we wanted to kind of take a look at each week of what we can learn from these different men and women in the New Testament. So we started off with Peter. And we looked at his story and we saw that Peter made a lot of mistakes in his life. He, he failed a lot. He, he stumbled an awful lot. And the question is, is that your story? In your life as a Jesus follower or maybe as a Jesus explorer, is your life kind of like, well, you know, I've fallen down an awful lot. But the thing about Peter's life is that he kept going. He, he stood back up and he kept going and he was, he, he was faithful eventually to the end. We looked at Paul, who had this radical conversion experience. And, and the question that we got from Paul is, is your story one where you've rejected religion to embrace the relationship of Jesus? That's what Paul's story said to us. We looked at this guy called the Gerasene, who uh, was hurting himself and about as much of an outcast as you could get in that culture. And Jesus essentially turned his life around and, and made him a new creation. Is that... Is that your discipleship story? Have you embraced the idea that you are a new creation in Christ? We looked at James a couple week, weeks ago and that story at least said to me that are you a disciple that feels overlooked sometimes? Are you a disciple that feels like you've been left behind and that people are doing all of the fun, exciting stuff and you're kind of stuck somewhere? How do you navigate that that story, James's story as a disciple. And then last week we looked at John the Baptist, Pastor Mark did. And the question of John the Baptist is, are, is, as, is your life of, as a disciple one that declares and shouts out that Jesus is greater 
than me. Now, all of this is, mo- is building up to the 13th week of Gallery 13. And that is where we're gonna sort of turn the, turn the cameras around and we wanna look at the portraits of discipleship that are in our midst. And we're gonna give opportunities for you guys, for our friends, this community, to tell what kind of portraits are hanging in these walls every Sunday when, when we come in here together. So that's what we're all building up to. And in a couple of weeks, you're gonna start hearing more about how you can tell, be a part of telling your story. Because this is pointless if you don't have a story of discipleship of your own. It doesn't, we all have them. And the whole point of this is saying, you know what? I do have a, a, a unique, particular portrait of discipleship that I'm living out. And we wanna hear about it. And I think the whole church will benefit from hearing about it as well. So we're gonna take a look at a guy named uh, John today, John the Beloved, not John the Baptist. And we're going to actually start his story where we started Peter's story in the first chapter of Mark. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, it's gonna be in Mark chapter one, verse 19. When Jesus shows up to call Peter, uh, Peter's not alone. Peter's brother is there. But then after he calls those two brothers, We see in verse 19 that the text says, a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John. Now, this is not James from two weeks ago. This is a different James. In a boat repairing their nets, he called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men. Now, uh, just briefly, some biographical information on, on on John. We know, obviously, he has a brother. Uh, From the text, and especially from comparing it to the call of Peter, we know that James and John, um, even though they're they're fishermen like Peter, they're they're slightly different fishermen. We're told in the text that Peter's standing in the water, casting his nets out. And then we're told that James and John are what? They are in a, they're in a boat. and that indicates that James and John, that John comes from a slightly different socioeconomic station than Peter and his brother. Because in that culture, if you didn't have all the money in the world, you fished standing in the water with a net. If you had some money, you had a boat. And furthermore, we're told that what? There were also hired men there. So uh, his father has a fishing business, John's father does, and he's a part of it. And the business is probably doing pretty, pretty well. So Zebedee is their dad, and uh, James and John are a part of his business when Jesus comes and calls them. And they leave probably a fairly thriving business. There's also something else that's interesting about John's story. John's father is Zebedee. John's mother is a woman named Salome. Um, And not the Salome that had John the Baptist killed. It's very confusing in the first century, trust me. This Salome... Uh, is the, we're told in the scripture, is the sister to Mary, Jesus' mother, which makes John what? Jesus' cousin. So this is a family affair. Jesus comes to his cousins and he says, follow me. And this James and John do. Now, James and John, uh, I think, are, they, they have one of the best nicknames in the New Testament. If you, anybody know what James and John's nicknames are? They're the sons of what? The Sons of Thunder, which if that doesn't sound like a professional wrestling like tag team thing, 
I don't know what is. It's the best nickname in the New Testament, the Sons of Thunder. And so uh, scholars think that this is uh, an allusion to their temper or to their personality, that maybe they leaned a little bit on the intense, passionate temper tantrum side of the, of the spectrum. And uh, we, there's an interesting little anecdote about their personalities that I just want to uh, show you real quick in Mark chapter 10. This is James and John not at their best. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor because we're the sons of thunder. Um, and Jesus says, what is, your, what is your request? They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. And we're just gonna stop there. Uh, Jesus, this does not go well with Jesus. Um, Jesus asked them, you know, I don't think you know what you're asking because Jesus knows what's coming up in his life and they can't walk the path that Jesus is gonna walk, the path of suffering, the path of death, the path of torture, the path of execution. But this just gives a little bit of an insight into James and John's personality. The sons of thunder, maybe they're presuming on the fact that they're family hey, Jesus is our cousin. Like, we should ask for this. We deserve this. Maybe they're presuming on the fact that they have some money. Hey, we know what it's like to be privileged in the world. We come from a thriving business. Let's ask Jesus for this place of honor. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach them about serving, and uh, they're kind of put in their place. So John goes on, and tradition has him associated with the fourth gospel that we have, the three gospels, synoptic gospels, what we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's gospel. John's gospel, if you don't know it, if you've never read it, is, is very different from the other three gospels. It's very powerful, uses different metaphors, different descriptions of Jesus, and over the centuries and the thousands of years, it's been used by a lot of people to uh, really understand what Jesus is like, what God is like. It's a powerful, powerful tool. Now, John, somewhere in his life, uh, leaves Jerusalem, leaves his home, and he goes to a place called Ephesus. And let me just show you where Ephesus is on a map. Uh, Jerusalem is down in the lower um, right-hand corner, and if you see Ephesus, is really smack dab in the middle of the map. It's uh, in modern-day Turkey. So John becomes associated with churches in Ephesus, and he goes there, he pastors the churches there, he pastors the church leaders there, he shepherds them there, and over the course of time, he writes some letters to the churches there that we know in our Bible as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And he just deals with issues that are going on in those communities at that point. After that, sometime after that, uh, John eventually writes the book of Revelation, which is the last book of our Bible. It's uh, Revelation, if you've never read it, is very difficult reading. It's full of imagery and, and metaphors. But by this time, the church is becoming persecuted. The church is beginning to be oppressed. And Revelation is essentially the story of how a church deals with oppression, how a church deals with a Roman empire that is becoming increasingly harsh towards it. So John writes this letter full of, of stories and imagery that tells the church, look, times are going to be hard, and this is how you need to react 
as the people of God. Now, this is where it gets interesting for me. John is, tradition says, is the only uh, one of the 12 apostles that's not martyred. He's not executed. He's not killed. He writes Revelation, we think, somewhere in uh, the 90s, the very tail end of the first century AD. Now, just think about that for a second. He writes Revelation somewhere in the 90s. It it sometimes is dated very early, as far as almost as early as 60, but basically 90 is when most scholars think, 90, 95. John is born somewhere around 1 to 6 AD. So how old is John when he writes Revelation, most likely? He's in his 80s. And this is in a time where when you're born in the first century, your life expectancy is 20. If you survive childhood, your average life expectancy is 40. But John hits 80. And it got me to thinking about being a disciple and looking at your life and getting older. And I started thinking about like, when did John peak? You know, most of us think in terms of our life is just like going up this mountain and then at some point we're like, man, I am the, I'm at the apex. It doesn't get any better than this. And then we start the long descent down. I started thinking like, when did John peak? Did John peak at like 30? Because that's when he got called essentially as a disciple. So did he peak when he was walking around Judea with Jesus and learning all of these things? Did he peak after the resurrection, when the, the first Christian movement is taking flight and they're seeing miracles and Pentecost is happening and it's crazy. Did he peak when he went to Ephesus? Probably in his 40s or 50s and shepherd churches there and write letters. Or did he peak when he wrote the last book of the Bible? Did he peak in his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, 60s? 80s, 90s, I don't know. But I don't think he peaked at like 30. I don't think he kind of got to the point where he, he was ready to go to the first century equivalent of Florida and be like, man, I'm just going, got my RV, got me some good Crocs or flip-flops, and I'm just gonna go sit and watch. That was not John's life, was it? 80 years old, and he's writing the craziest book of the Bible. And it got me to thinking about what it means to be a disciple and to get older. And what it means to follow Jesus after our 20s and and 30s. Now, uh, you may or may not know, I had a birthday last week. I turned uh, 46. And 46 doesn't feel like 36, in case you're wondering. And it sure don't feel like 26. And I can speak firsthand that like aches and pains are a real thing. Like I'd never thought like that's just people complaining like all the time. No, like I have got like things. Like I get up, I'm like, ow, geez, I sneezed in my back. Like I, um, I started running. I started running. I wanted to become, I want to become a runner. I am the pr- in the process of becoming a runner. I want to become a runner for the first time. And so I started a couple months ago and I hurt my foot running. I didn't like trip over anything. I mean, I ran, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't fond of running, but I ran in my teens and I ran in my 20s and I never got an injury just from running. 
but I hurt my foot because my bone structure is changing and things don't work the way they used to. And it's been like three, four, five weeks now of trying to heal from this thing. Getting older is, in one sense of the imagination, is a very real, very legitimate thing for a disciple. But what I want to suggest to you today is that there is a unique biblical way of getting older that John's story hints at. So what I want to look at is a small little sentence, not from anything John wrote, but from actually something that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in in a letter to a church at Corinth. He writes in the fourth chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians, this one short sentence. He says, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Now, contextually, you could say, you could wonder, is, is, is Paul talking about persecution? Because in this context, uh, he is talking about the beatings he's received and the persecution he's received. But there is just a reality that our bodies, my body, is dying every day. I am moving towards an end. The last time I checked, the mortality rate is still right around 100%. And in, some, in one sense, I'm moving that direction, and we all are. But Paul says, in another sense, we are being renewed every day. Now, there's some interesting things about the word choices that Paul uses in the Greek. The the word that he uses for renewed is a Greek word called anakinos. Let me hear you say anakinos. It's a combination of two Greek words. Ana, meaning again, and kinos, meaning new. He just puts them together and the, and the word is simply that, again, new, again, new. Now, what's significant about this is there's a couple different words that are used in the New Testament to, to refer to our concept of new. There's two Greek words. One Greek word is neos. One Greek word is kainos. Paul uses kainos here. Neos and kainos are very similar concepts. They both mean new but there is a very, very subtle distinction in the way they are used here. For instance, uh, when Jesus in the Gospels, at one point he's talking about putting new wine into new wine skins, he actually uses both these words in the same sentence. Neos and kainos are kind of floating in in the same passage that Jesus is talking about, but there are subtle differences to the way they are. Neos, I'll say it this way, Neos refers to anything that is new in terms of time. Neos is simply something that wasn't there and now is there. It's something that didn't exist and now it exists. It is new in regards to time. And this difference will will become more explicit as we go forward into this. But let me just give you a couple different examples of what Neos means maybe in our culture. In 2000, the year 2000, uh, there were approximately four reality TV shows. Any guess as to how many there were in uh, 2011? 172. And I don't know, we don't have cable in our house anymore, but in my house, it seemed like there was a new reality show starting every single week. We had 
Oh, I don't know, Lumberjacks, we had Duck Dynasty, we have, you know, uh, Deadliest Catch, we had Lumberjacks on fishing boats, hunting ducks. I, it, every week, panning for gold, you know, or whatever, the, the Snake Pit, or all of these docudramas, reality TV. There's a new one, that is Neos. There wasn't a reality show in your favorite time slot last week, now there is, and you don't understand what's going on. That's new. This is even more uh, mind-blowingly new. Um, in 2011, over a 14-day period, the App Store, Apple's App Store, added uh, 540 apps a day. The Droid equivalent added uh, 740-some apps a day. In a 14-day span in 2011, at the end of that 14 days, uh, 20,000 apps were added between Apple, Droid, and BlackBerry. That's Neos. Something wasn't there, and it's there, and it's coming. In our culture, Neos is happening all the time, isn't it? Something new, new stores. I, in fact, I, I read also in just in the whole concept of apps that now in 2013, uh, the Apple App Store alone adds 20,000 new apps a month. That's Neos. We experience Neos all the time. It's just new. Kynos, however, is different. Kynos takes Neos, it takes newness, and it adds to it the concept of contrasting with what was there before. It's different. Something is different. It's not just something that's new. It's something that is different. Kainos, in other words, you could say is disruptive. Kainos makes you sit up and go, oh, wow, my life is now different because of what just happened. So a couple of examples of Kainos that just uh, come from some things I've heard here and there. In 2008, Clint Eastwood starred in and directed a, sh a movie called Gran Torino. I don't know, anybody ever seen Gran Torino? Critically acclaimed film, great film, right? How old was Eastwood when, this, when he made this film? He was 78. Was Clint Eastwood Neos new in any form of the imagination? No. But he made a movie that made people sit up and take notice and his newness was not related to the kainos new that he, brought to the, that he brought to the planet. Another even better one is in 1994, Johnny Cash entered the studio with uh, producer Rick Rubin. And he made a first of what, that's his, isn't that the creepiest picture ever? Johnny Cash looks terrifying there. But he made the first, uh, the first of what was a series of recordings called the American Recordings in 1994. Cash was 62. He went into the studio and he covered all manner of, of, he had some original songs, he had some songs he covered. He covered a Nine Inch Nail song called Hurt that transformed the song. And in the process, it, it exposed Johnny Cash to a whole new generation of listeners. Made him relevant again. And he made something like five, six, seven versions of these American recordings before he passed away recently. Something happened in that. It was disruptive enough that it wasn't just a new record. It was 
Kynos knew. It's time to sit up and take notice. You know how many records Johnny Cash had made before he made American Recordings 1? He had made 80 records. He was good at Neos, but American Recordings was Kynos new. Something was different. And that's what Paul is saying, that outwardly we might be getting up with more aches and pains than we had the day before or the year before, but spiritually we are being renewed not just in the sense of like new in time because we can't go back in time. I'm not gonna be 45 or 44 anymore, but I have the opportunity to bring something new to the world that wasn't there before. Are you with me? Does this make sense? How about something that's a little bit closer to home? How about around 2001, 2002, a crazy pastor shows up from California and he sits down and he meets with some people who were looking for a lead pastor to lead a church. And some of those people are in their 20s and 30s, but some of those people are in their 40s, 50s. Some of those people are in their 60s. And at the time when the people, particularly in their 50s and 60s, should have been saying, could have been saying, you know what, give me a comfortable pew that I can sit in every single week and hear the same songs that I want to hear and be comfortable in the church routine that I know when they should have been, could have been doing that, they said, you know what? Let's do something different. And they embraced a kinos moment with Mark McNeese. And we've heard so many stories about them. Maybe you haven't heard them, but we've heard stories of like people like saying, you know what? Yeah, maybe I could just go to a church. Maybe I'm 60 years old and I could just go to a church where I just hear what I wanna hear. But what's the point in that? Let me do something that is going to live beyond me. Let me do something for the next generation. One of my favorite comments is when someone, um, I think Mark even asked somebody in their 60s, hey, what do you think about the music? And you know what they said? They said, I hate it. I don't like the music. But you know what they said then? But it's not about me. That's kainos. That's saying, I wanna do something disruptive and different and new, whether I am 20, whether I am Neos in this world personally, or whether I'm seeing 50s and 60s in front of my birthdays now, or 70s. That is Kainos. And that, I think, is what John was living out when he said, you know what? Jesus was great, but I'm not done yet. Let's go to Ephesus. Ephesus was great, but I'm not done yet. Let me write some letters. Let me keep going. Let me encourage the church by writing and experiencing this revelation of apocalyptic imagery because the church needs me. I don't care if I'm 80. The church needs me. I'm just gonna keep going and keep going. Now, the rub about this is I don't think this happens automatically. Now, there's hints and there's encouragements throughout Scripture. Psalm 1 describes, I think, the life of Kainos really brilliantly when the writer says that people who follow God are like trees planted along the riverbank. And they bear fruit in season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in everything they do. Now here's the thing about trees. 
Now, if you guys remember, this is kind of a personal subject for me because a tree fell on my house a few years ago, but that was a rotten tree. When a tree is healthy and stable and fueled by water, when the winds come, a tree bends and flexes, and its strength not, doesn't come from the fact that it stands there and just, and just digs in against things but a tree will bend when the wind comes and flexes because it's fueled by water. And this sounds remarkably like a statement that Jesus makes in John chapter four, the the very guy that we're talking about. He records this interaction between Jesus and a woman who's seeking out spiritual things and spiritual depth. And she says, you know, Jesus, I, I, I need to have a debate with you. I wanna know about my life And give me, Jesus says, uh, they have this dialogue about water. And eventually Jesus makes this remark. He says, anybody who drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty again. Because this water becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And they'll be planted along the riverbanks. And their leaves will never wither because the water's always coming in and it's living water and it's bubbling up. One way you might say is that a kainos life is fresh and it flexes and it embraces new things. When Johnny Cash sits down with Rick Rubin and Rick Rubin's like, hey, what about Nine Inch Nails? And Johnny Cash is like, okay. Mark McNeese shows up from California. Hey, I want to kind of tear up your concepts of church and throw them up in the air and do all this stuff. A kainos life says, okay, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it, but it's not about me. How do you get this? I think that there is a, a key element to this. And again, understanding that neos Uh, in Greek means new in regards to time. Kainos simply means new in regards to what went before. Jesus has this interaction. Maybe you've heard this story where he's teaching and there's some kids that want to come to him. And the disciples are like, get away, kids, get away, kids. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. And then he says this, maybe you've heard this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, but anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a what? child will never enter it. And when we think of that, I think we think of like the Sunday school version or the vacation Bible school version of child. And we're like, oh yes, because children are so innocent and Jesus is telling us to trust. And I always thought this, this is so beautiful. Jesus is telling us to trust like a child until I had kids. (laughs) And yes, kids are innocent and they trust. But has anybody ever seen like another side of children? Anybody ever seen, like, if Jesus is using this metaphor, like, there's another aspect to being a child and having childlike faith that isn't so cutesy. Well, maybe it kind of is. And it looks a little bit like this. Watch this video. Because God knew that people would need milk growing up. So that they could have strong bones. Because they're going to have to be healthy and be able to hunt and gather. Why, Daddy? 
Well, because that way they can eat and live and survive. Why, Daddy? Because, Why? because you have to eat and, sur and survive to keep the population going. <laughs> Just like you like to eat, right? Why? Because you get hungry. Because your body uses up all the energy that you use. Why? So that you can play with your princesses. Why? Because I thought you liked to. Why? I don't know. That's up to you. Why? 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 Anybody ever lived that with their kids? You're just like, oh my gosh. There is something about, uh, I, I just want to kind of suggest this. There's two halves, I think, of having a childlike faith and therefore having a kainos life and therefore living a life that doesn't peak. One is being willing to ask questions. You know, some of us live our lives, and, and maybe you're in this phase of your life right now, where you're kind of more interested in the conclusions than you are the questions. But I think a kainos life says that there's still room for why in your life. Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Matthew that when you come to God, you ask. And, and really the translation is you ask and you keep on asking. He uses another metaphor. When you come to God, you knock and you keep on knocking. Why, Dad? Why? 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 And some of us, when we get into our 40s, we're more interested in, in explaining things than, than asking questions. But when we explain things and when we seek the conclusions too much, we close ourselves off. Well, life can't work this way. I'm not going to record a Nine Inch Nails song. I'm not going to be a part of a church that I can't sing hymns that are familiar to me. That's not what church is. Why? Why? Another question of like, what? What are you up to, God? Instead of going, I know what you're up to or not up to, God. I know this can't be right. What are you up to? A kainos life just keeps asking questions, whether you're 20 or 70 or 80. But the other part of this is that you also have to take the approach of like sometimes you're just not gonna know. I think in our 20s, we ask questions because we wanna know the answers. And we become, we become fixated on solving the great problems of the world. I think by the time you get to be 50, 60, 70, you know that you're not going to solve the great problems of the world. And a lot of the big questions are going to have to stay. I don't know. I don't know. But those questions leave us open to new things. I was thinking about this in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of being able to embrace the concept of, of not knowing and just living a little bit and getting some life and realizing that you're not always going to see the results of the questions you ask. And, and I stumbled across this quote um, from T.S. Eliot. And uh, it, it goes like this. Uh, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That we explore and we ask questions, 
But a lot of times, instead of solving the problems, we just come back to the very first place we were at and go, I don't know. Let's start something new. Let's do something else that's different and new. Maybe uh, you could say it this way, and I'll, I'll close with this, that a kainos life, I was thinking of it in terms of punctuation. I think our culture and so much of our life leads us to want to live a life that's marked by a period or an exclamation point. I know everything there is to know, period. I've solved all the problems I need to solve, period. I know what church is supposed to look like, period. I know what type of recording artist I want to be, Johnny Cash, period. I've done it all, period. Or what's worse, maybe, exclamation point. Not only do I know, but I'm gonna shout and yell until everybody else knows, too. But maybe living a life that doesn't peak at 20 or 30 is living a life that's willing to be marked by punctuation marks like question marks or ellipses. A question mark that says, you know what? There's a lot more mystery in the world at 70 than there was at 30. I mean, I'm 46, and I gotta tell you, I know less about the world than I did at 36, and I'm okay with that. Because I want my life to go up and up, and I don't wanna say, man, when I was 28, that was as good as it ever was. I wanna be 80 and write some kind of crazy book that nobody will understand. <laughs> That's the type of life I think God asks, invites us to. An ellipsis is the same type of concept. It just means that something got omitted. It doesn't mean necessarily something bad. It just means like, hey, you know what? I don't know. There was something there. Maybe I need to know about it. Maybe I don't. It invites a question mark. Well, what God, I don't know. What, what's happening in that space? What type of life do we want to have as disciples? Do we think that 20 is, is where discipleship is at? Or do we think that maybe if we have a childlike mind that just says, what's next, God? What's next? Keep my mind open. Keep me away from the punctuation marks of life and keep me just embracing new possibilities like a child that asks, why, 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 why? Because I think a life like that just goes up and up and up and up. In other words, a disciple of Jesus is simply this. He's never too old. And you're not. And I'm not. I may be too old to like run effectively. But I'm not too old to do stuff that matters. I'm not too old to be renewed day by day. And what's beautiful is that God says, you can do it. You ask questions. You be willing to embrace new things. Because God's on the move. He hasn't stopped yet, so why should I? Let's stand for closing prayer.